We spent, well, the precise count is 61. We spent 61 Sunday mornings in the book of Hebrews and ended several months back. And when it ended, I kind of conversed with myself about whether I should come back and preach a summary of the book and thought that it maybe wouldn't be a bad idea, but I just didn't want to do it then. Then I got asked about it and thought, well, I probably should do it. And so this morning, that will be our subject matter, not a a strict review, but a summary of what the book is. And so, as you stand, please, as you're able, we're going to begin, we're reading a lengthy portion this morning, and so physically, you might need at some point or might wish at some point to sit, but we're going to read chapter 3 and chapter 4 together, and In essence, I'm going to re-preach something that I preached fairly early in the series. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, Inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, But the word preached did not profit them, 
not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth, or established is the idea, a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, and that's Joshua, the Old Testament use of the word, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he has also ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and of spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we'll stop there and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me to preach faithfully this morning. And I pray that you would help us to receive that which is preached joyfully. What a potential for godly assurance to know and to understand your word. And I pray this for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. I've thought about this much the last couple of weeks. And without going back and trying to prove the point all over again, in Hebrews chapter 13... The the writer of Hebrews, the preacher, the pastor, tells us to suffer the word of exhortation. Which we take that word and trace it back to Acts, I believe, chapter 13. When the apostles are invited to give a word of exhortation, they stood up and preached. The book of Hebrews then constitutes the longest recorded written sermon in the scripture. Now, its subject matter is not eternal security. 
But eternal security is a major part of the sermon. The subject matter of the sermon might be something like this. The salvation that Jesus Christ, the great high priest, purchased for us can be nothing other than an eternal salvation. All of those elements are brought together, folks, in chapters 3 and 4. The Old Testament testimony is traced back. The explanation is given. The greatness of Jesus' work is mentioned. The application of it to us is included and explained. It is the nature of any genuine faith. This is the point that we will discover, folks. It is the nature of genuine faith that it is eternal in nature. It will always exist, perhaps weak, perhaps stronger, but it will always exist in a form that can be clearly defined by the Scriptures. There are other types of faith, but the faith that Christ gifted us, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is nothing other than eternal in nature. And this is the great testimony of its presence in the lives of God's people. Early in chapter 3, the pastor points out to us that God's goal for us is His rest. If you want to look at chapter 3 and verse number 11. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. And then we find it frequently in chapter 4, verse number 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. And let me just pause here, folks. If you're familiar at all with the book of Hebrews, you know that it has a variety of what we call these warning passages, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, that some people twist to teach you can have your salvation taken away from you, that some people are frightened by, but I would just remind you, if you grasp the overall gist of the letter, which is that Christ's salvation is an eternal salvation, you will be able to deal with those warning passages properly. So there was a generation, to go back into the book of Numbers, we will momentarily, that could not enter into God's rest. And yet there's a promise made to us that there is a rest. It cannot be the same rest. No place is the church, no place is the band of Gentile believers that God is saving ever been promised even one toehold in the land of Palestine. Chapter 4, verse number 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest. There's a promise of rest. Those who believe do enter into rest. Verse number 4, For he spake in a certain day, a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Verse 5, And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, 
Verse number 8, for if Jesus, Joshua, that's the, that's the context there, Old Testament Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not have afterward have spoken of another day? If entering into the land of Palestine was the end of the rest, he would never would have talked about another rest. Verse number 10, or verse number 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There is one more Sabbath, is the idea there. That's a different word, rest. There's one more Sabbath to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his, a tie back to the creation, verse number 11, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. It's a major, it's a major dominant theme early in the book of the, early in the early part of the sermon, and the word means just that, rest. To rest, to cease from one's labors, to be tranquil from one's efforts. There is a Sabbath to be kept. And, and, the, and the framework of it, right? There are two Old Testament places that keep being referenced. One is creation. When God got done creating, He rested. Now, we understand, folks, we would understand this intuitively without trying to build a big case out of the Bible, that God didn't stop all of His activity when he rested. He stopped the work of creation when he rested. It isn't like God got done creating and then he went off to take an extended nap for a couple of million years and did nothing. But the work of creation was done. And then the other Old Testament event to which he refers is the leading of the children of Israel into the land of promise that is there referenced as the land of rest. The weekly Sabbath is a weekly reminder, a weekly testimony to the fact that there is a rest for the people of God. And the land of Palestine was a symbolic rest, verses 10 and 11, chapter 4. But it was never the final rest. We know that for if Joshua had given them rest, he would have never talked about another rest. And again, folks, I think we would understand this. If, if this rest could be summarized in any place geographically, in any position financially, then God would not talk about it anymore. Right? I mean, God could define it this way. Rest is when you get $10 million in the bank. Or rest is a place where the temperature is never above 80 and never below 75, and it only rains at night. And the wind never blows. Except on Christmas Eve when it snows but it doesn't stick. (laughs) Because we're all dreaming of a white Christmas. All of those things, folks, were indicators. And I'm not saying they weren't literal places and real events with real people but they were all indicators that God has something for his people that is rest. And it is a rest that has salvation as its orientation. If you look at chapter 4 and verse number 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. And it is a rest like God rested. Verse number 10, for he that has entered into his rest, God's rest, 
he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. As I said, God didn't God stopped creating, but he didn't stop his activity. And we will stop the labor of this life, but we will not go out of existence. Neither, to go off on a tangent, will it be an eternal existence of sitting around on clouds playing harps. Who's interested in that? And the pastor, folks, the writer of the letter, the man who is preaching the sermon, is passionately concerned that the people who hear him are focused upon this rest, Hebrews 4.11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. The way that we would labor, right? There are people in the world who labor to be very skilled in a particular discipline. And I don't mean that in any way critical. I'm just saying, if you're going to be good at anything, folks, if you're going to be a good musician, if you're going to be a good artist, if you're going to be a good computer programmer or a good mechanic, you're going to put some effort into it. You don't get good at anything except being bad without working at it. Labor to enter into your salvation. That's the instruction. Put your mind to the fact that we are dealing with our eternal souls. That there is something far more important than money and geography and pleasure in this life. Labor to enter into that rest. Secondly, the pastor points out to the people that the impediment to entering rest is their unbelief. So here is rest. Now, if we just think naturally like human beings, right? If you could think of rest as a room, or if you want to be very Old Testament about it, if you could think of rest as a place, the land of Palestine, there it is. When I cross the Jordan River and I enter into that land, I am at rest. Now what's going to keep me out of that land of rest? What's going to keep me from opening the door and entering into the rest of salvation? If we look at it very naturally, we see all kinds of obstacles, as the Israelites did. Right? Twelve men were sent to spy out the land. Twelve people were sent ahead to tell us what it's like to be in heaven. And they come back with a report that said, this is heaven. This really is heaven. You should see the grapes that grow there. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. But, boy, are there obstacles. There are obstacles to that land. There are monsters in that land. And our advice is that we don't go there. It's too difficult. Now, those are 
completely, totally, folks. These are the way, this is the way we talk. I'm not criticizing you. I'm certainly preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. This is the way we talk. Right? God tells us something, and our obstacles to what God says are invariably naturalistic obstacles. Our opposition is the obstacle. It's too hard. It's too hard to do that. You talk to people about going to heaven and you explain to them, for instance, just the simple gospel. Isn't it amazing how simple the gospel is? Trust this man over here. Throw yourself on this man's mercy over here and all will be well with you. And they say, no, I think I'm okay on my own. I don't really think I need that. I think if I do these three things or I think if I just pretend that it's not real, because after all, what kind of a God would do this or fail to do this or neglect to do this? I just don't think I could buy into that. But when we go back through the text, and I'm just going to give you the references rather than go back and reread them. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 4, verse number 11. When you ask God, when you ask for a supernatural explanation for why people will not put their hand on the doorknob and go into the land of rest. God has only one response. You don't believe me. You don't believe me. No, no, I I believe you. But, but there are all these things. And this is the way that we talk to the Lord, folks, on a fairly regular basis, on a very fairly wide spectrum of things. God will say, here's what I want you to do. We'll say, I just don't think you understand why I can't do that. I don't think you quite grasp, Lord, how unreasonable it is for me to be expected to do something like that. To quote the words of the old Harry Chapin song, there are planes to catch and bills to pay. It's just very... It's just very unrealistic that you would act those things of me. But God always comes back to the same assessment. You just don't believe me. You just do not believe me. You just do not believe me. So that if you go back to Numbers chapter 13, to what appeared to be completely a completely rational explanation, yes, it's, it would be very good. Right, If I did what the Lord said and, the, and it all worked out, it would be a wonderful thing indeed, but I just don't think it's going to work out because there are all these things that apparently I'm thinking of that the Lord has failed to take into account. Without getting into it, this is where Hebrews... Chapter 5 turns its attention. This is where, folks, Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, again, without going back and re-preaching the entirety of the book, I would just encourage you, many people are familiar with Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12, but I would point out to you that it begins with the word for, or as we would say today, because labor to enter into his rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief because 
Because nothing is hidden from God. When I'm sitting down here making my completely rational explanations about why I couldn't do what he has clearly said to do, nothing is hidden from him. On the other hand, the good news is, nothing at all being hidden from him, we who are true believers are nevertheless invited to come to him. Wherefore, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain grace to help in time of need. The Jews said, we'd like to go into the land, but you don't understand there are giants there. God said, I understand clearly that there are giants there. I have a plan for dealing with giants. You just don't believe it. So, again, structurally, this is where Hebrews 5 and 6 then direct our attention. What... What is the potential peril of those who confronted with the call to salvation, which is, again, is, the, is really the gist of the book, right? We would, we would extend it into every matter of obedience. What would we say to people who apparently have the appearance of being identified with and yet will never really cross the river and enter into the land of rest? Well, that's Hebrews 5 and 6, which brings me then to the third point. God has a rest for his people. This is the rest of salvation. The impediment to that rest is the people's unbelief, not their rational objection, not their explanation of what should be done or how it should be done, or maybe God didn't think of this, but just an absence of faith. Hebrews 3 and 4 argue for a third point, and that is the perseverance of faith is the mandate. So, what is it that's going to get us into the land of rest? Faith. Because unbelief is what's keeping us out of the land of faith. Not work, certainly. Faith. Faith is going to bring us into the land of rest. What kind of faith? What kind of faith do we have to have? And this is where, folks, many people, right, depending upon your background in fundamentalism, many people get kind of squishy. What kind of faith do you have to have? And the Bible answer is very clear. You have, to have a, you have to have a faith that is a continuing faith. You have to have that kind of faith. Again, some of us, depending upon the, the particular branch of fundamentalism we were raised in, we just kind of trafficked in this world where we were trying to elicit a one-time response of faith from somebody, and perhaps they would make a public profession, and perhaps they would get baptized, and then perhaps, maybe kind of, sort of, it might be, but probably not, they were going to live some rendition of a Christian life. But that didn't matter, because they had made a profession of faith. And how they lived afterwards, that didn't matter. But I would point out to you that particularly in Hebrews chapter 3, 
we have this ongoing emphasis. Look at verse number 6. But Christ as a son over his own house. Moses was faithful. Moses was a servant. He was a faithful servant. We're grateful for Moses. But Jesus is the son. It's his house. Christ is a son over his house, whose house we are. Right? Which refers back to one of the analogies, right? The, the people of God are like a vine and a branch, and the people of God are like a living building. And this is the living building analogy. Christ is the son who's the master of his house, and what is his house? We're his house. Under what conditions? if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of help firm unto the end. Or verse number 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So what kind of faith, right? What does God have for his people? Rest. What do they need to enter into that rest? Faith. What kind of faith do they need to enter into that rest? Continuing faith. Enduring faith. This is what is required of us. Now again, please let me make sure that we do not misunderstand what we mean by faith. And for this reason, we are, for this is one of the reasons that we are particularly grateful for Hebrews chapter 11. The common denominator of everybody in Hebrews 11 is that they had the kind of faith that's being described in Hebrews 3. One of the other things that is prevalent among those in Hebrews 11 is that they all have episodes of personal failure. Ongoing faith, folks, is not some kind of perfection. And I want to be very clear here, which I will get to in the next point. We're not talking about something that you yourself are manufacturing and hanging on to. In other words, please do not, please do not hear me saying this. I'm not saying this. That our faith is some kind of work that God is requiring to save us. What is required for salvation? Faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Our faith is God's gift. What will keep anybody from getting saved? Absence of faith. By the way, if you weren't in adult Sunday school this morning, we dealt with this. What was the problem with Cain? God is very clear what the problem with Cain was. He was born of Satan. He had no faith. What did God say to Cain? Genesis chapter 4. If you're pleasing to me, I'll accept your offering. What's required to be pleasing to God? Faith, Hebrews 11.6. So what do you need to be saved? Faith. What is the obstacle? Unbelief. What kind of faith do I need? A faith that continues. It is a faith that continues. It is not perfect. It is not that every day is puppy dogs and rainbows but it is a faith that endures. 
And that brings me to the fourth point, folks. How can God require of me a faith that endures? And the answer is because that is the kind of faith that God gifted you when he saved you. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why would God gift to anybody? And I know we're in Hebrews and we're going to come. But just think about it, folks. Why would God give a man a gift of faith that couldn't last his lifetime? What kind of gift would that be? Last night at the banquet, everybody had an opportunity. Not everybody. There were three gifts on every table. A desired gift, a utilitarian gift, and I can't tell you what the gift was that nobody wanted, but I had a granddaughter that, that when she was four really did want it, and she had her own particular name for it that I will not mention to you publicly. She was four. With a particularly demented sense of humor, even at the age of four. That's all I can tell you. So here's God distributing faith. And some guy gets a faith that just can't take it. Just can't hack it. It's a faith that can't last. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 1. Wherefore, holy brethren... Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. And again, I would just point out, folks, as you're reading all those warning passages, in Hebrews chapter 6 is particularly gruesome in its warning passage. I would just remind you that the pastor always circles back to this. But, you know, I really do think you're saved. I'm not trying to tell you that you're not saved. But I am trying to tell you that there are people who walk away And that's a frightening thing. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him. Consider him. Consider him. Now, Moses was faithful. Without reading all the rest of it, Moses was faithful. But Moses was just a servant. He, he, he couldn't bring you into the land of rest just like Joshua couldn't bring you into the land of rest. But Jesus can bring you into the land of rest. And this is why, folks, beginning in chapter 7, you have this lengthy explanation of the work of Christ and its superiority to the work of the law of Moses. And the work of the Levites. And you have these kinds of assurances that come out of it. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. That come unto God by him. Seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So in other words folks. As we walk our. Th- we, we have this lengthy sermon. 13 chapters of a sermon. That, that really isn't meandering, but at times seems to meander, that is making this point God's goal for the life of his people is their eternal rest. 
And the things that keeps people away from that are not their circumstances and their obstacles. It is their unbelief. Because what is required is faith. And what kind of faith would God require? The kind of faith that he purchased with the sacrifice of his son. Enduring faith. Eternal faith. A God who is always alive can only give a faith that is always alive. Let me ask you, if you would, to move away from the book of Hebrews for a moment to 1 Peter chapter number 1. So in in Hebrews, we have like chapters 1 and 2, an introduction to the superiority of Jesus Christ. And I'm just speaking very generally. Don't don't try to outline this off of just what I'm saying right now. But Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, an introduction to the superiority of Christ. Hebrews 3 and 4, at the, the, the point of the book. The point of the book. That unbelief is the impediment to eternal rest. And you must have an enduring faith that comes from Jesus Christ. Five and six, cautions and admonitions and warnings. Seven through ten, the theological basis of an eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 11, examples of those who have that kind of faith, though they are far from perfect. Here's a, one ver- a couple of verse snapshot. Hebrew, or 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively, the idea there is living, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. This is something that is for those who are true believers. How does this work? Right? We are blessing God, verse number 3, who has shed his mercy upon us and giving us a living hope, right now a hope that is alive, for something that is reserved for me in the future. Hebrews 1.5 I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, 5. Who are kept. And the idea, the idea of the verb there in the Greek is this. Who are continually being kept. By the power of God through faith. In other words, folks, to go back to the book of Hebrews. What does God require of people for them to enter into his ultimate rest, salvation, faith? What is the impediment? Not circumstances. Unbelief. What kind of faith does he require? Enduring faith. What kind of faith does he provide? Enduring faith. That's the point that's being made. That's the point that's being made in 1 Peter 1.5. You are continually being kept by the power of God through the faith that continues, that exists 
in perpetuity because a living God can give you no other kind of faith. There are other kinds of faith. Those faiths don't last. Those faiths fall prey to things like peer pressure. Those faiths fall prey to things like materialism, worldliness. But the faith that God gives is an enduring faith. It is always laboring, but it is laboring in hope. Let me ask you then, if you would please, to turn finally to Hebrews chapter 13. And to give you just a very brief snapshot, right? An introduction to the superiority of Christ, the purpose of the letter. Hebrews 3 and 4. Warnings, cautions. This is something to be taken seriously. The theological basis, Hebrews 7 through 10. Exhortations and encouragements, Hebrews 11 and 12. Application, what does this look like in real life? Well, if I could work through it backwards, folks, it works in Hebrews 13, 10 through 16. There is a spiritual dimension to this enduring faith that God gives to those that believe him. In other words, it is rightly oriented towards God himself. It offers sacrifices that are acceptable to him, which are praise. We're not working, we're not laboring in animal sacrifices. But our thinking and our wording reflects the fact that we recognize that God has saved us in his mercy. We are grateful. And then there is, folks, in verses 1 through 9 particularly 1 through 3, or 1 through 4, there is kind of a human dimension to our faith. In other words, folks, God God gives a faith that lasts. He demands a faith that lasts, but we never get to make our own definition of that faith. So Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember them that are in bonds is bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Let me give you a summary this way, right? The faith of the people of God, Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, looks something like this. In a world that hates God's people, in a world that hates God's people, God's people love God's people, Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. This is the kind of faith we have. It is a faith that loves God and loves the things of the people of God. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable and all the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Unbelieving people love sexual impurity and uncleanness, but believing people, people who have God's gift of faith, Love, sexual purity, and cleanness. 
Unbelievers don't. Believers do. Verse number five. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be, with, be content with such things as he has, as you have, so that for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. Unbelieving people are chronically unhappy and complaining but believing people should not be. Should not be. In other words, folks, the faith that God gives is not faith that shines neon lights in the sky and has some kind of special fireworks. The faith that God gives is the kind of faith that grinds out Christianity every day. And I'm not trying to be discouraging in that, but we are constantly at warfare against the forces of the evil world that reside right in our own heart. Love God's people. Love purity. Be content. Praise God. Sing to Him. Thank Him. This is what that faith Right? What does continuing faith, what do you mean by continuing faith? Always in the fight for these things. Let's pray. Father.